and welcome to yet another rousing round of the Dice of Screaming podcast. Ah! Whoa, that was a lot of Something of a wild cry. A wild cry. <laughs> How the, the dice are wild crying. All right. Yeah. Uh, I'm shaking it up a little bit for you out there. Scream from the wilderness. Or cries from the attic. Whichever you like. Brought to you by Randy and allegedly Mike. Yeah. It's allegedly Mike and I'm Randy, so not allegedly I am. So, <laughs> Hey, you uh, own it. I do. Uh, welcome, and here we are talking another week of podcasting, so hope you enjoy our show tonight. What we got lined up is kind of a look at Steve Perrin, so we're going to again skip the Arcane Eye and uh, just get into what's coming up next. So what's up next on the reading of the runes? Okay. What does the fortune portend for us? Uh, the Oneromancer goes oh, yes. to sleep, and in his dreams he reads the future. And he perceives that we will be talking about not just the music of gaming, but the music inspired by gaming. Okay, oh. it's, it's a relationship that you know cuts both ways. That while hey, certain music was incredibly influential on gaming, gaming has been influential on music as well. Our, our nerd and fantasy culture oh. has has given back. Okay, so we're going to be looking at that. So that's for the future. Okay, so dust off your Rush cassettes and as well uh, get those <laughs> Yes album covers out. Line them up. Yeah, the, those classic Led Zeppelins. Because, uh, you know, I mean... It's, part of it's about citrus-based produce, and yeah, the other part's about elves and hobbits. So. Yeah, elves and hobbits and some stuff about Not citrus. Cool. Yeah. You know. <laughs> A lot of tangerines and lemons getting mm. squeezed. Yeah. <laughs> Shaking. So, all right. So that's uh, for next week's podcast. Um, yeah. And also we had some uh, talk about our Dark Conspiracy role-playing game, Conquest. Uh, Conquest, yes. Podcast from last week. Some people had mentioned that uh, we were a little too gushy. and I'm going to say that's fair. I, yeah. I don't feel like we exercised a lot of critical uh, things because I... I I'm kind of with you. You'd mentioned casually before that you you saw that as uh, this was us uh, dredging up like the Loch Ness monster of, of hidden. Yeah, a lost things. game safari. And we just wanted to like shine a light on here's something we considered really awesome that did not get a lot of attention, and even I had never gotten to play it. Heard about it, you know, new people who had been at games of it. But I never got to play it. So I, I, I think you're right. I think we'll revisit it in... Um, I think we should probably at some point schedule a short campaign. Yeah, like a mid... And do a mechanical uh, comparison where like we look at some of the actual uh, rules uh, and how they function. You know, something yeah, like, I think it's like it's, more... it's compared to like Shadowrun. Shadowrun can be a little fidgety, but uh, once you learn the basics of it, it runs pretty smooth. And I think the same applies to that as well. I like the the realism uh, or the pseudo realism of dice rolls <laughs> interpreting uh, ballistic damage. However, I think Dark Conspiracy blended it pretty well. They didn't go as in depth as to, uh, Twilight Two Thousand, which you would expect more out of a oh, combat yeah. system like that. But they Kept some parts that may have, for a lot of people, just turned them off. I mean, like Call of Cthulhu, you really don't think about 
the mechanics very much. It's pretty intuitive. Yeah, you know, there's tap so much going on in the horror sense that uh, you know, like you're not looking at just the, roll percentile dice. We'll mechanics. figure it out. And yeah, that's pretty much it. But where is got to hand it to him? Yeah, but fair enough. Uh, atmospherically, uh, Call of Cthulhu is a game that you know distracts you from uh, like a. a very specific focus on uh, battle mechanics. Yeah. Uh, whereas, <laughs> I like what you mentioned about Twilight 2000, because there is a game that's combat intensive. The you know mechanics of how a conflict is resolved. Uh, and yeah, because they had mass combat, they had skirmish combat. combat, and then they it had squad. It has to be you know, precise, and like sometimes a little tougher to uh, master some of these minute details, but it's a big chunk of the game. Right, and so... Less so for games like this, where Dark Conspiracy, on the other hand, has that little hint of that Call of Cthulhu-esque, you know, the focus is on the investigation and the horror, and a little bit less of a power emphasis on the, uh, you know, monster slaughter. Well, I mean, you're more equipped to deal with the monster slaughter in Dark Conspiracy than, say, you are in Call of Cthulhu versus... A... Yeah, because in Dark Conspiracy, you might be able to win. Yeah. <laughs> in Dark Conspiracy, you don't have to burn all the books. In Call of Cthulhu, you better. You better hope that... You better hope that that monster's dead after you dynamite the house after soaking it in gasoline and kerosene. In Call of Cthulhu, books burn you. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh... We enjoyed uh, some of the feedback we got from the members of the yeah. Dark Conspiracy RPG site, and we really enjoyed uh, the fan group on Facebook, I shouldn't say site. Yeah, the fan group there, uh, you guys are really uh, very nice to us, and I feel like maybe we let you down a little bit. Uh, so we will revisit it, and I think that like what we, what we lacked there was a skeptical eye about... What did this game do to the genre and things like that? Because we're so far removed from that. I mean, it happened, what, in 91? And a whole other things happened. There was games like Conspiracy X, uh, Underground had been a little bit before that, which I, we would like to cover, so that is in the future. But we'll cover Underground a little bit later, which will require some heavy groundwork Bureau to explain 13. that. Yeah, Bureau 13, Stocking Night, Fantastic. Those all, uh, yeah, had about the same kind of gestalt mindset but I mean after the X-Files I mean that's another thing I think that kind of hurt Dark Conspiracy in the long run was is that the X-Files was a lot more marketable and didn't require a lot of background and one of the things I liked about Dark Conspiracy right off the bat is it's an alternate reality you're not bound to what happened in 1987 yeah it, again you know here's a timeline where uh, you have the flexibility to adjust the details of ordinary life, uh, you know, in a way that is suitable for your intentions. Uh, sticking, I, I don't want to say that, like, the timeline of the real world is a straitjacket per se, but it does put a little cap on how you explain away phenomena and events, uh, or work them around certain realities. So, and another thing about Dark Conspiracy is is that sen the central power of the government is not there. And make of that what you will, but there's, it's still, yes, there is a still government in theory in power, but it's not what it is with a federal agency like the FBI and others and the NSA to kind of 
come in and clean the scene, so to speak, of these <laughs> things. And that puts more emphasis, of course, on the player characters having to be tasked with doing the right thing at the moment. Yeah, they're they're doing the dirty work themselves, and they're uh, while there's no one to oppose them, uh, save the villains, uh, there is also nobody to help them. <laughs> right, the government agencies will often probably come in, swoop in, and try to cover everything up to keep people calm. And that, to some minion hunters, is not what they're going to do. Think like Blade. They, you might be fighting a covert war against these minions of darkness, but at the same time, you also want to blow the lid off this thing so you get more people to the cause. Yeah, and, you know, like the best of all scenarios that you could possibly hope for is an empathetic uh, government agent who's like, I know that something weird is happening, and I can't put my finger on it, but I know that whenever you show up, it stops being a problem. Right, and that's a that, good NPC that is to have. as close to support as you ever really get in Dark Conspiracy. You don't really get the, like, hey, we're going to build an office building for you and supply you with a staff and some funding, and hey, here's some better weapon. No, doesn't happen. You might get that from a couple agents. Nice. You might get a couple experimental weapons they'd like you to test out in the field for them. <laughs> uh, where did you get these? Uh, don't ask. <laughs> um, uh, don't ask, don't tell. Agurdian uh, from... Uh, Tao Zeta came by and, uh, you know, was selling them on the uh, black market. We managed to pick up a few for ourselves. We're not really sure what they do, but they have this tentacle that attaches itself under your arm. It's quite painful. Uh, no, just take a couple of these aspirin. Hard pass. Yeah, hard pass. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. Um, but we did get a call in from Jason. So, oh, yeah. Uh, and so maybe he can better articulate some of the other Hi, things. Jay. Yeah, so let's turn it over to Jason. Take it away. Hey guys, Jason here. I don't have it in front of me. Let's see, the X-Files was 93. So, yeah, this... I'm not saying this did not influence it, but, you know, to be fair, the, um... We, we know the Night Stalker, you know, Coltrack with Darren McGavin was a primary influence. And if R any RPGs were, you would think it would be something like Stalk in the Night, Fantastic, Bureau 13. The other thing Palladium did that's of this genre, I think more so than Rifts, is Beyond the Supernatural. And, and that's pre-Rifts as well, I, I think. I don't know. It all runs together anymore. But great job. Oh, the other thing, the, the wonky thing with like the combat was that Twilight 2000 thing where bullets are grouped in threes, so a revolver has two shots, right? That, that was always kind of weird. But great job doing the review. Okay, I had to look it up. Yeah, Beyond the Supernatural was 87. Riss was 1990. So, you know, they all kind of came around the same time, right? Anyhow, great job. Looking forward to your next podcast. And, you know, hang in there. Talk to you soon. All right. Hey, thanks a lot, Jason. That, uh, thanks for the call-ins, man. Uh, always, always good to hear from you. Yeah, um, and you're right that there's a number of like antecedent. Uh, a lot of stuff was happening right yeah, around the same zone. That was starting to come out. Um, you know, one thing that we didn't get to touch on was the tabloids. Uh, how to creature adventures when you find yourself stuck between games for an idea. So just go to the supermarket, stand in the checkout line, and read the tabloids. And they provided a lot of ways to take some of the tabloid headlines by generating some fake ones themselves <laughs> and how to weave it into the dark conspiracy. And 
That was what I found unique, besides just the alternate timeline, is that they fully embraced the weird wackiness that, uh, I guess, uh, what is it, Men in Black, they called them the hot sheets. Yeah, this is how we track down what's really going on. What? Best journalism ever. <laughs> well, I love that you mentioned Kolchak the Night Stalker. Which yeah. I'm lamenting that I, I didn't reference that at all, which total moment of shame. I mean, mea culpa. That is one of the best weird shows that like did not. Oh yeah, definitely predating X Files by yeah many full, years, full decade if not more. And I mean, sure, it was like it was one of those sleeper cult hits where like nobody cared about this show. Nobody, it was almost unheard of. Like, it didn't last all that long. You know, it's not. Was like, it Gavin? Um, oh, oh goodness, we're gonna have to look it up. Yeah, yeah. but. Gavin. In any case, here was this show that loved and appreciated all the weird, outside-edge, gothic sensibilities, you know, vampires and werewolves and weirdness in every direction. Uh, Darren McGavin. You know, those kind of shows were super few and far between in those days. Just... It became a lot more popular later on, you know, like just a decade later, you'd see this huge sea change where people would take risks on that. But then, no. Yeah, you know, the the Night Stalker influenced the Rakshasa and I believe a couple other yeah. monsters. Um, even had the subterranean lizards in one. Oh, yeah. The one underneath, they had uh, the tunnels they were digging underneath the municipal buildings. <laughs> You're not going to get quality TV like that uh, very often. <laughs> well, okay. you know, it was it was a little bit better done than Doctor Who at the time. But yes. let's not knock it off. The, yeah. Doctor Who, they gave the guy 20 bucks. Go down to the hardware store and make us a monster. <sighs> yeah, and this is how you get the Daleks. Which is well, like, oh, hey, now. The Daleks, at least the talking garbage cans. <laughs> yeah. The, With the a plunger. Angry, yeah, the angry squawking garbage cans. That... Sorry, man. Uh, I, I got to hand it to the uh, the cats over at uh, Kolchak, the Night Stalker. They they did the very best they could with what their they made resources. It pretty good. Yeah, the uh, with the resources that were alive. They had Lauren Green as uh, Count Dracula too. Yeah. Hey, and was he not a fabulous Count Dracula? Oh yeah. <laughs> what actor wouldn't rise to the occasion when given yeah, that role? Man. Lauren Green. Still but he was going after a female vampire, Camellia. <laughs> Which, if you know about that, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree that uh, there is a lot of antecedents I, of games that uh, kind of co-influenced each other on that. Dark Conspiracy, for better or for worse, was just one we wanted to cover out of. Hey, this is one that's kind of slipped, I think, a little unfairly out of the public limelight. They've, uh, look, they've they published a couple other editions and as far as I understand there's a new edition being planned which will probably be updated which is good to look at but I don't know there's just something really attractive about the style the Elmore artwork and all, uh, Janet Alicio uh, artwork in the mi mixed all the way through it there was just so much good stuff in that, that yeah it, if it seems like we gushed a little too much and didn't invest enough time in criticism uh, I'm going to I'm going to cop to that and say that it is a little bit of a love affair cuz although I had less experience which is to say no direct personal experience with it uh, once a, the rule book was acquired and you know, like a thorough study was made I loved everything I found 
So I, I may have been overly elated, and like I hadn't had time to like have a moment of disenchantment. Oh, that's our clunky part right there. I didn't have that. I, I went through it and with the fine-toothed comb, and I was just like, oh man, it, it's like a wind sandwich on wind bread with like wind sauce, and just everything here is wind. I was I was perhaps yeah. a little overly happy. But well, I think it's deserved credit. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many tales that can be told from survivalist horror, you know, fighting off gangs and roving cannibal farmers to trying to protect the few last citizens that actually have something worth having anymore. Yeah. And, uh, or fighting some gangs in a dystopian, mirrored, uh, glistening towered mirrored city that just uh, has dark shadows and things going on that people just turn a blind eye to because they'd rather not think about it. Yeah, that, that things that go bump in the night. Why is this city, you know, besieged? Why, why is everything despair and dread and awful? And maybe there is some terrible purpose at work in the shadows that makes it this way. And there's still hope to make it better. If we track down the perpetrators and make things right. I, it had a lot to offer in almost any setting you could slap together. Yeah. I, I was impressed by that the flexibility of... Yeah, it's like Shadowrun. There's just so many good tales that can be told out of just Shadowrun besides just corporate espionage and criminal hijinks with guns. Yeah, and my noir love means that, like, you know, everything comes to noir. Yeah. Uh, whether it's Call of Cthulhu or cyberpunk or, uh, you know, even if you have D&D. I mean, I've, I've done noir sessions... Uh, where like the theme and plot and ideas at play were okay. If I'm gonna be super candid, here goes the kimono. Uh oh, yeah, just the, it went flying. Yeah, it's off. Uh, not merely open. I have riffed off of so many Humphrey Bogart movies. Okay, Casablanca, uh, the Maltese Falcon. You know, I have deliberately. Oh, Dead on Arrival. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's another classic noir movie. Uh, Chinatown, things like that. Noir has enriched a lot of, I think, some of the best sessions I've ever offered as a DM. And people noticed. Uh, they, they came away from a couple of those sessions like, I only got to draw my sword and fight. And like, I, I didn't roll to hit anyone until the last 15 minutes of the game. And I have never sat on the edge of my seat like this, even at the movie theater. Dude, this was great. And that touched my heart, man, because you do not often get praise like that. That was, that was touching. So, yeah, the noir potential that I saw in it may have also caused me to be overly enthused. But so, I, I don't think I can be blamed. Then. No, I mean, there's, like you said, it's a wind sandwich on wind bread with wind dressing and wind cheese. Yeah, yeah. it's a win all the way around. And there's just, it's, it's one of those games that come out that just excites the imagination and begs for scenarios and just to be played. That you just want to sit and roll up a few characters and find out what is going on. Oh, I just want to write plot after plot. Uh, yeah. Like that, it's not my, I'm not in character mode with that one. As soon as I read it, I started going into DM mode, which, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, that one takes you right Overarching in. meta plot and then, you know, minor obstacles and mini bosses and, like, conspiracies within the conspiracy and, you know, got to throw in the red herrings and, 
Oh, it was delicious. Just <laughs> that is the kind of stuff that makes gaming as you know as a DM so fun to me. But we really should. All right, but well, yeah, we wanted to touch base on that and kind of tie up. Sorry some to ramble a little too oh, much that's there, all right. but uh, you, know, you could expect no less. Oh, <laughs> from the hastily improvised grudge monster of Ooh, gaming podcast. You know you done screwed up then. You done pissed the DM off. Here comes Grudge Monster. I've been numbers. fighting this thing for seven rounds. I've done enough damage that, like, one of those is not supposed to have 16 hit dice, dude. <laughs> what are you saying? Saying I'm a liar? What are you, what are you saying? That the Ring of Vampiric Regeneration <laughs> is not... Not any of your expectations here? You don't think that that uh, could happen? No, just saying. Uh, yeah, it happened to me once. Yeah. Rayana. Wow. Ring of Vampiric, Vampiric Regeneration with two-handed fight. Not doing a whole lot of damage, Jeez. but... Two short swords. Plus four. Double specialization as a fighter. And wearing a Ring of Vampiric Regeneration. Yeah. I was... <laughs> I was getting bled like crazy. And I was like, what did I do wrong? Do I owe you money that I don't know about? <laughs> Sorry, I made a monster that was tough. <laughs> made a thing. Who farted in your elevator, man? <laughs> that was totally unintentional. I, I was just oh, it's just man. one of those moments of like this will work really well. <laughs> oh yeah, it was a moment and then I was like, oh shit! And then you know, oh shit! Holy crap! But hey, you know, if I'm tallying that damage up and like, all right, I am almost sure this person cannot possibly have like 200 hit points. Well, if you add up all the damage that's been done to you, you might find a correlation here. Yeah, yeah. Healing as fast as they could, you know, harm me. Oh, brutal, brutal. But, hey, that's us. That's not a grudge monster, though. What we're talking about is, what do you mean it's immune to all weapons? Well, it just is. I've never heard of this monster before. That's right. I found it on, a, on the interwebs. Yeah, it's a... The murder castle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know you done screwed up. Hastily scrib scribbled. Grudge monster. It's my own creation. Homebrew. Yeah, I've seen that before. Uh, uh, this is about we've the all experienced it, but it's yes. part of the game we love. Get in. And that is us. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't really have to make sense. It's got you just some have awkward to moments it. here and there. A little awkward, but it's part of the game we love. Not as cringy as some. Oh. All right. So, we had learned, probably everybody in the sound of our voice knows about the passing of Steve Perrin, a longtime yes. creator and designer. And, you know, it wasn't until his passing that he realized that how much he had been influential in the game industry, how long he had been a part of it. Because his influence was vast, but... He wasn't as singular as a person like oh, yeah. uh, Gygax or Arneson. Or uh, uh, St. Andre or... Uh, well, Andre's Steve is Jackson, still with him. You know, Those guys are with us, but Stafford, like... Yeah. You know, with Pendragon and uh, Glorantha. They uh, have a huge influence way outsizing their initial entry in the game. I mean, Gygax is the giant, but at the same time, he wouldn't be where he was without Arneson. And yeah. Arneson, you know, kind of 
gets a little bit more a diminished role but here's a guy who had just as much influence it just again it was kind of shocking to know that he had been this involved for this long yeah i'm gonna cop to a certain amount of ignorance okay i knew who steve perrin was and i knew the major projects that he'd been involved in the incredible length of his involvement in like the science fiction and fantasy fiction communities and the scope of his contributions totally escaped me. I did not realize until we were doing the preparation for this episode just how profound an impact this guy had. Uh, some people land on the, the gaming universe like a meteor, and everybody knows it happened. Like the, the sky is still glowing, and you know, like there's a big, you know, trench tore through the earth, and like a smoking rock there in a crater, and you know, some farm couple finds a baby in it. And, oh. Yeah, well, you know, super events, people remember these things. Steve Perrin was not like that. This guy was quietly everywhere doing amazing stuff. Yeah, you know, I compare him a lot to uh, Len Lakofka, uh, who was a little bit more... He was behind the scenes, but he contributed a lot to the early and, well, even all through D&D's you know, I-Generation, second and third. He was there, just not as you know much as he was in the very early days, of course, because there was a lot of room. But you know, uh, anyway, Perrin to get back on with the Perrin was a guy who was, man, he went all over the place. Uh, people would normally associate him with RuneQuest, and you'd be right to because he come up with the system. They'd actually had Dave Hargrave. Yeah, of was the brainchild, obviously, of, oh. of our main man, okay, uh, Greg Stafford. But the mechanics by which they, they built the actual role-playing system for it, uh, that's where Steve Perrin comes in. And I, They wanted to make a game to go with... This is not like an Artisan Gygax comparison. This, this was an amicable uh, partnership that like drifted on and off and on and off. Uh, none of the like really bad blood that you know people yeah imagine. Stafford had created a game called Red Moon White Bear and Perrin was a fan of it as well and they wanted to make with Dungeons Dragons coming out a new game to kind of harness the world of Glorantha from Stafford and so they fiddled with a couple systems and they were the first one really to break the ground of anybody can do anything it was less about your class than it was about your background and they worked really hard with that. They even got, like I said, uh, Dave Hargrove of Arduin Grimoire to do it, but they weren't very satisfied with that. So they moved on, and this was the system that came out. And it bears some semblance to some of uh, Perrin's and his friends' contributions into the SCA, because he was very big into that. Yeah, Society life. for Creative Anachronism. Uh, long before cosplay uh, had you know, hit the world uh, and become popularized. Uh, the Society for Creative Anachronism was out in their medieval garb uh, and, you know, uh, in many cases going with the more Arthurian slash Shakespearean themes, but, you know, the pageantry, the acting, uh, and the recreation uh, was, wow, a beloved hobby that took off quite well. And it is not surprising to many people that gamers uh, were rapidly drawn you know, like to and from you know, like there was a, a intersectional quality about this yeah where, an intersectional yeah uh, you, know, you could be a gamer 
or a gamer who was also in the SCA, or an SCA member who was also a gamer, or neither or both. You know, it just, it, it, for some reason that I think is pretty obvious now as we look back, uh, it, was, it seemed strange to people then, but when you think of the connection to medieval lore and medieval history, the SCA was a huge hit uh, with all of the creative minds that started, you know, churning around uh, miniatures, wargaming, and fantasy roleplay. Uh, so, yeah, this guy was in that too. He was yeah. everywhere. Well, he was also a big contributor to the Dundracon, which was in the West Coast. And we talk about Gen Con so much. Yeah, we. Because it's a Midwest thing, but Dundracon in the West Coast was pretty big as well. And he was one of the cats who helped get that off the ground as well. And during there, he sat with Arneson and um, Miller adjusting uh, parts of the D&D combat system, which became known and infamously as the Perrin Conventions. Um, <laughs> His contributions to those rules. And we're talking about like 1976, 1977, 1978. Uh, yeah, Dundracon, a lot of good stuff was coming on the West Coast and people began to take notice. So... Besides just doing that, he was also very big in the comic fanzines, of all things. But that was kind of a side gig, and we're going to put a little pin on that and come back to it later. But uh, he did a lot of stuff with fanzines, and also before the Monster Manual was released, uh, with another guy, uh, Jeff Pimper. Yeah, Jeff Pimper. Um, from Alarms and Excursions, they produced three monster books. Uh, all the World's Monsters, Volume 1, 2, and 3. And they, uh, of course... The first one predated the Monster Manual by just a little bit, but uh, the other two came afterwards. But they but contributed. They were literally the, I, I think, uh, the first one predated, uh, was predated by another publication. Uh, there was a Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was another one, uh, All the World's Monsters. Oh, The Book of the Book Monsters. Monsters. Book That's of it, Monsters by Little Soldiers. Uh, but <laughs> you, you got to hand it to them. Uh, they had the monster manual concept before the monster manual was out. Yeah, I think they were kind of co, but again, co-divergent. Yeah, uh, uh, ideas that were coming out that people wanted to see more monsters put together rather than carrying a small stack of fanzines. Exactly. Uh, they wanted a compilation that they could just turn to. But you know, you're already looking at the variety here. You know, whether it's the war gamers or the SCA uh, creative uh, anachronism society. Uh, or uh, fanzines uh, <laughs> and you know early publication of gaming peripheral books here's a guy who is showing up everywhere I mean you know, this guy like it he's like Santa Claus in the CIA <laughs> you know just you can't turn your back with him all right there he is uh, it's amazing that one guy was already and that was not where it ended okay right it went to it would still be impressive if this was all he had done yeah he helped get uh, RuneQuest started and off the ground uh, putting in the new system in there that became basic role playing or worlds of wonder as it was later uh, compiled into and of course uh, the various and sundry licensees uh, Stormbringer Ring World and uh, of course Call of Cthulhu yeah. all came from that system. So, definitely, uh, as Shannon Applecline said, uh, Call of Cthulhu is the evergreen system out of that. That's the evergreen out of that whole scene. 
but yeah, the he one still that stands owns twenty five. Yeah, tall it's just so dwarfs the others. Which uh, big kudos to uh, Shannon Applecline's uh, article on RPG.net. Uh, it is an outstanding review of uh, the life and times of Steve Perrin, which. Wow, well done, well written. Totally worth a read by uh, anyone listening that like, wonders a little, hey, you know, I wonder what else this guy got up to. Yeah, have a peek for yourselves. And yeah, when we said sticks that pinned into his superhero love, he also developed Superworld, which was kind of had the accident of coming after the champion, so they incorporated the point buy system for the superheroes, but it didn't catch on like Champions or some of the other games, especially Marvel Superheroes, because, well, it's Marvel, so yeah, the mighty Marvel tradition lives on. But uh, it made its mark with a certain person, George R. R. Martin, way back when. Yeah, not even kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Steve Perrin influenced George R. R. Martin. Yeah, he gave, apparently he gave George R. R. Martin a copy of Superworld for his birthday. And uh, back in 83, and as uh, George R. R. Martin said, it ended into a or- two-year orgy of role-playing where he had decided that i got to make some money off of this. And he wanted to write some supplements and do some things for the game. But instead, he decided to help his friend out, uh, Robert Asprin, in the shared world concept of the Wild Cards universe, which they developed. And Perrin would go on to write several characters as well as stories in that anthology. Yeah, the uh, Robert Asprin's Thieves' World was uh, this ridiculously successful shared world anthology of books, and it proved, I I think conclusively, that the fantasy book market was strong enough to support things like that. That Yeah, short stories written in the same world that had kind of the... Loosely uh, interlinked location and situations. Yeah. And everybody wrote a different story about a different thing, would maybe would brush up against each other, and they would trade these ideas off at conventions or whenever they get together. Yeah. And they would have a lot of fun with this. And so, so Wild Cards was, uh, you know, as Thieves' World was winding to its close, uh, Wild Cards was uh, coming into a being. Yeah, it was in its earliest uh, publication. Yeah, and it took the whole uh, four-color superheroes and put them into the literary format. And again, here's Perrin at this. He's working at that. And, you know, great influence that George R. R. Martin wrote about his passing. He was a good <laughs> friend of his, and they had been known, known each other many years. Um, it's basically showing that Perrin's work affected in a larger world in ways that we weren't aware of. Because you heard about George R. R. Martin writing the idea about having a shared superhero world where what if everybody had these different powers and, you know, they were different suits and hearts and of, of the heart spades and uh, clubs variety and, and diamonds. And so that's how they kind of identified themselves in those categories, you know, like... Uh, a cast, a person who just projected energy would be a, a wild card of the spades variety. Like, I'm coming at you in spades. <laughs> Where a paragon would be the diamonds. And that's how they kind of classified themselves in, a, in the variety the powers manifested. But enough about that. I mean, it just, it was a great idea that spawned from a, his work in a role-playing game. And his fan, love of the superhero genre and his work in the fandom and like a lot of people throughout the industry uh 
role-playing games just wouldn't hold the kind of long-term employment that these guys needed. Yeah, so they freelanced and, you know, winged it and did a lot of projects. Yeah, Chaosium started to wind down in the late 80s, so saw saw Perrin going to the computer industry. Uh, well, and, I should mention, you know, there in particular, I knew and best remembered Steve Perrin's work from his Forgotten Realms release. Yeah, so, and we uh, let's let's get back Hill to that. Farm, yeah, we, we want to talk about... We'll, we'll reference that in a bit. Yeah, I want to kind of end that one with uh, his work on the Forgotten Realms, because I think that... But, uh, yeah, he went in there in the computer biz, in the protean dawn yeah. of computing games. Okay, pool of radiance. Like, yeah, uh, the SSI gold the, box. I mean, we're just, there's a lot of people talking about rediscovering pool of radiance all over again. And I'm just like, Tyrion Thraxis, I mean, that whole plot line in there and the sub-quests with the characters of alignments could only get certain quests. Like, if there was ones where if you had an evil character, yeah, you were... You were encouraged to have a multi-racial uh, and uh, multi-alignment party. Yeah, as much as you had a paladin, maybe having just that uh, thief with the chaotic neutral, slightly uh, opportunistic, I'll do it for money. What do you got? <laughs> Bent was interesting. And, you know, people say, well, those games were just uh, combat simulators. Sure. But really, there was a lot of role-playing. The choices you made had consequences later on in the game and how you completed the quest what you did with the items you found had a bearing on how the game ended and played out so it had different replay value as well i could not get ye flask i'm yeah kidding. i'm not picking on full radiance at all that, no. that was other games yeah i'm looking at you caves of Eamon. yep <laughs> <laughs> oh man and you know he went on to enjoy quite a lot of work in uh, the computer industry up until he, he came back to uh, Chaos. But yeah, we want to talk about his freelancing across the industry. And of course, he worked for Hero Games as well as the DC Heroes game uh, later on. So working for Hero Games was the Champions and DC Heroes from Mayfair. But uh, he did, what is it, Robot Warriors? Yeah, back then. I'm not familiar uh, with that module. I think it's a module, but yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know that one. Yeah, but the one I'm uh, we're wanting to talk about is he worked with uh, Greenwood and Jeff Grubb with uh, the introductory module for the Forgotten Realms. The first one was N5 under Ilfarn. And uh, they freelanced this one because they didn't know how the Forgotten Realms was going to work out. Yeah, this was in my senior year of high school, and I had gotten the box set for Forgotten Realms and uh, taken up, you know, DMing more regularly uh, and it was kind of my preferred zone to be in uh, as a new DM because it was the material that I had like recently acquired and like very painstakingly studied uh, yeah. and I, I cannot forget Steve Perrin for there was his name on the first module available for that series uh, yeah it was a really good introduction Oh, it was. It was a very setting appropriate. He had a wonderful... You could tell that he had worked with other people who had done the development, as opposed to what sometimes happens in gaming and in publishing in general. Once in a while, you will get a setting that seems like this, and then an author who 
may not have like a good fit with the setting and they come in and they, they do some work and they may be a reputable author and creative in other circumstances, but this was clearly not the genre they should be working in. Ken Rawson. Ah. Oh, it's, you totally, I love how you knew where I was going with that. And I was trying to be oblique and polite and, you know, that, that was as nice as I could put it. But that yeah. was an incident uh, with the uh, Warhammer fantasy role-playing that crippled one of the great module campaign series of all time. Uh, that did not happen here. Under Ilfarn was one of those perfect examples where somebody had done their homework. Yep. You start in Daggerdale on that one, and you know, normally you're either from that uh, small village or town. Small, it's really small town, big village. And yeah, it's near Elminster. And you can tell here's where Steve Perrin's influence with, early influences with Glorantha came to work here. He took a lot of the Ed Greenwood's notes and expanded upon them in ways that they hadn't really contemplated before. And it's a larger adventure, and you go and explain the mine, the area of the ruins of Ilfarn, which have been left. And Elminster makes his kind of appearance of just giving you a the lore and lay of the land to get you started not accompanying you. He has other work to do. I gotta go back to Shadowdale. Yeah, that, let's not expect too much X day. But he, start, he he gets you started in Enchant's Encounter. So right there you have an encounter with Elminster, and I know some people out there, oh geez, I hate Elminster. I, I, you know what? That's what he's meant to do right there, is basically, Deliver just like Gandalf, position. he's there to knock on your door and get you out of the Shire, Bilbo. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm not here to carry you all the way to the frickin' mountain myself. <laughs> Uh, yeah, ex deus machina is not supposed to be taking care of everything for you. It's there to, like, introductory exposition and explanation. Yeah, it's literally you see a wizard sitting in the bar, and that's how that starts. Yeah, the eye of the wizard falls upon you. Uh, and Wait, boom. is that Elminster of Shadowdale? Holy crap! He really? He's like a rock star! This is like meeting Johnny Depp at the local pub! Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> wow. Uh, All right, I went there. You did. But yeah, uh, rather than this turn out about a exposition on under Ilfarn, he brought a lot of that chaosium punch to the Forgotten Realms, and it's a really good outing. And if you can track down a copy, which there are many available still. A lot yeah, this of is not a. This one's not a hard find. Okay, this was. Uh, by then, TSR was well supported. Uh, yeah, you can find uh, copies of this. If you want one that's still in the shrink, yeah, I'd expect to pay a couple a hundred for it. But uh, a used copy, it just sets you back about a good saw buck. Yeah, uh, you, it's 20. not. Yeah, this is not going to rake you over the coals. Uh, unless it's like an I think you can get the PDF for off of uh, yeah. Drive to RPG off Wizard site for about six, seven bucks. Well worth the time. So yeah, if you're curious about his work in the Forgotten Realms, hey, check it out. It is definitely, if you're a big fan of the realms, uh, and you should be at some point, especially during this early age, man, that was the golden time for me. Um, there's a lot of good things to recommend about Steve Perrin's work, but uh, he did come back to Chaosium back when they started pulling, we're putting back the band. Yeah, we're, we're getting the band back together. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and a half a pack of cigarettes. Dark, wearing sunglasses, full tank of gas. It's 210 miles to Chicago. Hit it. 
<laughs> and they did it. The, the original team came back together, and Mr. Perrin was among them. Yeah, and they got the new game off to a start. He wrote, uh, we haven't really reviewed it yet, but from the Smoking Ruin, he's wrote uh, The Lost Valley and Ervanton's Tower, and the Pairing Stones for the Pegasus. Pegasus Plateau and other stories as well. Another uh, adventure pack that we were going to review here in the future uh, with the Pairing Stones being close to the Perrin name, yeah. which is his lasting homage and legacy in the game that he helped get off the ground in the first place. Yeah, which the was end meets the beginning like Ouroboros, the serpent eating its tail. Uh, he came back to do superb work uh, with the team that he had originally you know, made that explosive impact on the scene with. And, you know, here's something else I wanted to mention uh, that I, I don't think we, we specified early on, mentioning his early involvement uh, in the mechanical aspects of uh, early RuneQuest. Um, the system alterations that he made, the, you know, this is how we accomplish things mechanically here. The uh, moving away from the class-based concept and the introduction of a skill-based, your character can be anything. Uh, he was, you know, his thumbprint is also yeah. all over that. You, ex you gain through um, succeeding at a role and then you have to roll over that role so instead of keeping track of experience points. We can't pinpoint exactly which person was solely responsible for that. But we do know that uh, Stafford and Perrin worked closely on these projects and that Mr. Perrin was one of the you know key guys in the mechanical development. Of the yeah, game. it could have been anybody with Crank. Wasn't, uh, he wasn't filling in just the story stuff. He was you know, working on the practical implementation of rules that would make the game playable. So he has to have been a major contributor to one of the things that we consider a genre-defining moment where the mechanics of gaming changed for the better, uh, I think, you know, where mm -hmm. the variety of options became available to people that worked and worked well. And it also, another thing is, RuneQuest was one of the first fantasy games to get away from the frickin' frack idea, like Dungeons & Dragons, Tunnels & Trolls, Bunnies & Burrows. Yeah, that... That you know, yeah, Traveler was there too. So was Metamorphosis Alpha. Yep, I, I can hear you out there. So was Bo Boot Hill. But we're talking about the fantasy game where people were using a lot of this and that. Yeah, to put I, it in to uh, to get a name out there because they thought it was so recognizable. But uh, it's one of those that definitely helped start breaking that trend altogether. And uh, that's another little thing that, that can be added to that. And like Mike says, we don't know who did it. Could have been Turkey, Turnkey. Could have been uh... managers and mayhem. The game of corporate expansion. Oh, <laughs> you got the mayhem right. Holy cow! You see the stock market? Ah, oh. oh. uh, thank you, economics. <laughs> All right, never mind. Sorry, sorry. Uh, I, I, I digress. Um, but yeah, it could have been uh, Crank, or it could have been uh, Peterson, or any one of those guys that was working hard back then. But hey, everybody threw their weight in and. Uh, you know, the, only the best ideas made it through that grist mill. And, you know, I think that uh, Chaosium President uh, Rick Muntz had this to say of Perrin. He is one of our great old ones, an innovative genius who helped pave the way for us to exist today. 
inviting gamers while they sit around a table in person or online, exploring stories and adventures together. Weaving new tales of Daring Do, RuneQuest, and Superworld were his children, and his imprint on so many of our other games is indelibly present. Many of us grew up playing his games. He was the uncle we admired, envied, and listened to for his wise counsel. In the last few years, as a new edition of RuneQuest was born, he was there. His wisdom and experience reminding us of the simple, pure, and wondrous origins of the magic of role-playing. How can you say thank you for that? And... Yeah, Rick Mates, I'm with you, guy. That is a fitting uh, eulogy. That is... Yeah, how do you pay a guy back who's given us this much money? Yeah, so if, if he had a... Other people have a single legacy or a, a really clear, defining uh, contribution. Uh, that is not possible with Steve Perrin because he was omnipresent. The guy was everywhere in everything. He brushed up against so many facets of a nascent culture and genre that he's inextricable. You you really can't have one without the other. And, well, I think on that, we pretty much said our piece. And uh, thank yeah. you. Rest in peace, Steve. Steve. Well and uh, thank you for everything. And, you know, rest in power, my friend. We knew you not as well as we should have, and now that you are past, we lament not knowing you as well as we could have. Yeah. Fair. Well put. So, with that, uh, we're just going to pass on. Uh, we hope you enjoyed, and of course, if you have any comments, and you know, we have the Facebook page, the group there, the Dice Screen, just look us up there. Um, I seem to be in Facebook jail, so Mike will be handling that for a little bit. More on that later. Yes, I, I will keep tabs on the Facebook page for now. So, more important than ever, just uh, uh, make sure you follow and like us on the Anchor app and make sure that you uh, keep up to date on our weekly podcast because we're doing it every week now. And uh, keep up to date on what's happening with us through our foretelling of the portents, our Oneromancy is we seem to be working its magic. Yes, the Oneromancer has, has been relatively accurate, and it's far better than my previous technique, which was trying to read the sheep guts, which was terribly messy, and I mean, there, we've got a small table here, and I mean, <laughs> it's very hard to do the show after I've liberally coated it in sheep guts. So, all right. Yeah, that wasn't working. But we thank you all for listening. Thank us to you, to, uh, thank you to our supporters, and thanks to all you listeners for giving us all those listens and little likes, and keep those calls coming in, folks. But until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya.